Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 18. It can be found on page 9 of the Church Bibles. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other, and Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards, for the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, thank you very much, Pfeffer, and um, good morning uh, to you all. Uh, As usual, we've printed for you on the back of the service sheet just a brief outline of where we're going to go this morning. Feel free to use that to make notes as we go along. And uh, I know we say this every week, but it's true every week, so we're going to keep saying it. It will really help you to have uh, the Bible passage in front of you. We're going to work our way through, uh, through the verses bit by bit um, as we go through uh, until the end of our time together this morning. Uh, let me pray, though, as we begin. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us, and we thank you particularly for this uh, book of Genesis Lord, we pray that as we hear your word this morning, you would give us soft hearts, that we'd be ready to listen, 
that we'd be ready to respond with repentance and with faith. Lord, that you might change us uh, to become like your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, one of uh, my favourite actors is a guy called Bill Murray. Um, You may well uh, know who he is. He's got all sorts of critical acclaim for his film Lost in Translation. Um, But we all know that his best roles are the funny ones. Um, Phil the Weatherman, whose day repeats again and again in uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, Big Ern McCracken, uh, the bowling champion arrogance. And, of course, uh, Dr. Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters. Now, he's a great actor. He's a remarkable uh, comedian uh, as well. But his personal life is an absolute mess. He's got some of the great lines in movie history, but when reflecting on his personal life, when he was asked about it, I think he said what is the greatest line of all. When he was asked about why things had gone wrong for him, he said, everything happens for a reason. But sometimes... That reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. And of course, he's right. Sometimes the messes messes in our lives, they're not our fault. But often what happens to us is simply because of bad decisions that we've made. This book of Genesis is full of bad decisions by the people that God has chosen. We begin to see that last week. God made these amazing promises to Abram. In chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, there were promises of becoming a great nation and great blessing to him and then through him to the world. And the promise of verse 7, a promise that this land of Canaan in which he was living, that his offspring would inherit that land. There were tremendous promises. But Abram, as soon as there was an obstacle in his life, he immediately doesn't trust God's word and makes bad decisions. What happened was famine came upon the land and he didn't trust God to meet his needs so he fled down to Egypt. And when he gets there he thinks, well Pharaoh will see Sarai, my beautiful wife, and will kill me and take her for himself. And so he lies and he gets Sarai to lie as well in order to save his own skin. He doesn't trust God, takes matters into his own hands and it almost ends in disaster. Sarai ends up in Pharaoh's harem. Plagues come upon Egypt. Abraham incurs Pharaoh's anger and is eventually sent away. It's not his finest hour. But what uh, Bill Murray gave no account for, uh, the book of Genesis wants to make much of. That despite our stupid and bad decisions, God is sovereign He is gracious and he is faithful to his promises. See, though Abraham gets himself in a big mess, God graciously brings him safely through it. Sarah is restored to him and even in the midst of it all, he's actually enriched uh, through Pharaoh's gifts. So right up front, we learn that Abraham's bad decisions aren't going to stop God's promises. That's the backstory to our passage this morning. So let's turn then and read verse 1 to 4, Abraham's return and repentance, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt. 
he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So what we see here, I think, is not just a return, but also a repentance. Abram heads up from Egypt. He re-enters the land by the southern region of the Negev. And he takes with him his wife and his nephew, Lot. And he's laden with all the wealth of Egypt. And what he does is he retraces his steps. He goes back to where he'd been before in chapter 12, verse 8, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he'd made an altar at the first. He's back to where he should have been. And the author makes this point really clear by reminding us that it was the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. You see, there was no altar built in Egypt. Notably, Abram didn't call upon the name of the Lord there either. He didn't worship the Lord as he should. But now God has brought him back on track. He has repented. He's turned from his foolish ways. He's returned to the worship of the Lord in the land God had promised him. He's returned to the place of blessing. We're seeing Abraham has grown in faith. He's recognized that he was in the wrong and he's come back to the Lord. And that's an important step for any believer. When we fail to trust the promises of God and when we instead take things into our own hands, when we live life as we please and we go our own way, well, we need to repent. Repentance, that recognizing the foolishness of our decisions, turning from our sin, coming to God in humility, that's to be our regular pattern. The problem is, so often we're too proud to do that. Having gone our own way, we, we often double down, we harden our hearts to the Lord. It would have been really easy for Abraham to do that, but he's humble enough to repent and turn back to God in faith. And I wonder if quite simply that's what you need to do this morning. It may well be that you've come here this morning and and you know that you've been walking away from the Lord. You've been living life as you please. But all the while, there's just that knowledge there in the back of your mind that you really are in the wrong place. Abram was humble enough to return and repent. And perhaps that might be just what you need to do as well. The Lord is gracious to those who do. Now, the test of whether someone's truly repented is whether there's any change in their life from that point on. Has Abraham really changed? Well, Abraham's faith in God's promises, that's about to be tested again. The land is about to um, produce another problem. And this time it's not famine, as it was before, uh, but overcrowding. Let's come to verses 5 uh, to 13. So verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abraham, uh, also had flocks and herds and tents. 
so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And sometimes I think, if, look, if only I had a bit more money, then all my problems would be solved. I wonder if you ever think that as well. I do uh, quite a bit. It does me no harm then to spot that actually here it is the wealth of Abraham and Lot that causes the problem, as it so often does. The land can't support the increased numbers of livestock that both men have gained. And as well as that, the land's got other occupants, hasn't it? The Canaanites and Perizzites. It's overcrowded. And it's causing some dust-ups between Abraham's and Lot's herdsmen. Now this, of course, still happens today. Many parts of the world where there are nomadic tribes, um, increased numbers, they mean uh, competition for grazing land and often end up in conflicts. So this is a test then for Abram. But look at his response. It's there in verse 8 to 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Last week we saw Abraham's foolishness, but now look at his wisdom. He's calm. There's no panic, no rash decisions. He's generous. He goes to great lengths to seek peace. He's willing to make sacrifices to achieve that peace. See, Abram had the right. He was the senior figure in the family. He had the right to take what he wanted and to tell Lot what to do, to leave Lot the rest. But he doesn't do that. He's happy to let Lot have first dibs. So this is the author, he's showing us that Abram has grown in faith, that he's starting to live by faith. Because remember, at this point in the story, Abram actually owns nothing in Canaan, not a bit. None of the land belongs to him. But as he looks out, he's he's trusting that God has promised him the land, the whole land, verse 9. It's his to offer to his family. And of course, isn't it true that when we trust God to provide for our future according to his promises, well, we become so much more willing to give what is rightfully ours away to others. Abraham doesn't take, he trusts, and so he can give. He's beginning again to live by faith. But, and now we get the contrast, Lot is living by sight. Now in these next verses, um, Lot, I don't think, is painted as a wicked man, but a foolish one. Uh, Now, uh, this is properly cheesy, but you might remember it. Um, Instead of a wise decision, Lot makes an eyes decision. It's pretty terrible, but hopefully you remember. He makes his decision purely based on what his eyes see. Let's read on verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The author here gives us several clues to show us the foolishness of Lot's choice. There are actually five of them. Um, So let me run through those for you. First of all, as we said before, he makes his decision uh, based on his eyes, what his eyes see. It's not a decision based on God's word or on faith, but on his own desires. And the phrase, it might get us just to think back to his great-grandmother Eve. She saw the fruit that God had told her not to eat. She was tempted away from trusting God's word because it was pleasing to the eye. That connection is deliberately drawn when we're told that the land of the Jordan Valley was like the garden of the Lord. Lot's eyes make the decision for him. That's the first thing. Second, uh, the land Lot chooses is like the land of Egypt. We've just come from Egypt, haven't we? And it was a foolish place for God's chosen people to go to. It was a land that provided much profit, but it was godless. There were no altars to the Lord there. And it was a place that threatened to take the lives of God's chosen people. Going to a place like Egypt, that sounds like a bad call, doesn't it? That's the second thing. The third thing, and this is probably the most subtle of the things, we read here that Lot journeyed east. In Genesis so far, east has been the direction of judgment. So think back to chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they're cast out of the garden to the east. And then chapter 4, Cain murdering Abel, he's driven further east. And chapter 11, you get Babel and the subsequent scattering. That takes place in the east. So here when we see that Lot goes east and he does it willingly... It's a sign of his walking away from the place of God's blessing and towards the place of judgment. Fourth, he's now separated by considerable distance from Abram. So he doesn't just go down the road. When Abram says you can go left or right, he's really got the things in front of him um, that he's got in mind. He doesn't just go down the road. He could have done that. No, he goes a long way away. He, in fact, he goes right to the edge of the land. And I think that's a big deal. So we've been told in chapter 12, verse 3, the first promises God made to Abraham, that Abraham is the one through whom God will bless all the families of the earth. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the closeness of your relationship with God's chosen man will result in either blessing or curse for you. It certainly seems unwise to go so far away from him. And then fifth, and this is really the most clear and obvious one of all, Lot sets up camp in a place of great wickedness. Great wickedness which is doomed 
under God's judgment. So the brackets there at the end of verse 10, they remind the reader of what happens later on. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason why God's judgment fell upon this place is given in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot has left the company of the righteous and set up camp in the company of the wicked. So put all that together, what have we got? Lot uses his eyes and chooses what he thinks is this attractive and profitable place, but in doing so, he distances himself from the place of blessing. He distances himself from God's chosen man, from whom God had promised his blessing would flow to others. And he ends up surrounded by intense wickedness and in danger of the coming judgment. John Calvin says of this decision, Lot, when he fancied he was living in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Now let's apply this to ourselves as Christians today. I'd like to spend a bit of time doing that. Now we, of course, we live the other side of the coming of Abraham's true offspring, Jesus Christ. So because of Christ's death and resurrection, we who trust in him, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ and in his kingdom. So we might think of it like this. God has promised blessing and a kingdom to those who cling tightly, not to Abraham, but to Abraham's offspring, to the Lord Jesus. To stick close to Jesus, to fix our eyes on him, to trust in his promises, well, that's the wise choice that brings real blessing both now and into eternity. And so it is foolish to be attracted by what our eyes see in the world so that we're willing to distance ourselves from God's chosen man, from Jesus and from his people. Now, sadly, many folks who profess faith in Christ become so drawn by what they see in the world, it begins to look so attractive to them that they end up like Lot. They end up camped there on the edge of ruin. So maybe you're a Christian student and you're about to enter Freshers' Week or re-enter uni life again. Well, there'll be a real temptation, won't there, to distance yourself from your allegiance to Christ and to join in with what seems like such an exciting lifestyle that the world offers. It's a huge temptation. Where will you set up your camp? With Christ and his people or with the world? Don't put yourself at risk like Lot did. Or maybe you're in the workplace and you think, well, I could really prosper in my career if I just separate myself a little bit from Jesus. If I tone down my connection to him and to his church, if I sort of put a bit of distance between us, and if I join in with the gossip and or I join in with the heavy drinking on the night out, or, well, I'm most likely to become more popular and I'm more likely then to get ahead in my career. It's very easy to feel the logic of that as persuasive, isn't it? 
See, living among the cities of the valley, it may well enhance your status, it may well improve your business opportunities, but it's not how to receive God's blessing. Sticking close to Jesus is. Or maybe you're in retirement, or perhaps you're just approaching retirement, and and you look over at your friends who seem to be having such a whale of a time and you think, well, now's the time to really enjoy myself. Now's the time to indulge in all the things that I've always wanted to do. And you're just beginning to look over there and think, look over there in the world and you think, well, to be there would to be in the place where I can really live, where I can experience life to the full. And you don't even think, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? So maybe then we are all in Lot's position. We are in this position. We're presented with these decisions to make each day. What would this passage say to us with these choices that are put in front of us? Well, it would say this. Look at Lot and Abraham. They stand in contrast to one another. Will we live by sight or by faith? Will we go after what we can see in the world that's right in front of us that promises us so much? If we do, we're choosing a world that's about to be destroyed. How foolish would it be to take that option? Or will we hold fast to God's chosen one, to Jesus? Will we trust that living faithfully in his kingdom is the truly blessed life, even against what we can see now? If we do that, if we cling tightly to him, well, we'll receive our eternal inheritance because God is faithful to his promises. It's actually God's faithfulness that is the final note of this chapter. Let's look at this in this final uh, verses. That's where, that's where we're left, looking at God's faithfulness. Verse 14 to 18. There's a shift back in these verses from Lot to Abraham. And here God graciously affirms or reaffirms the promises that he's already made. Now before we read verse 14 to 18, I want us to just spend a couple of minutes just looking first of all at what the promises were to begin with, what God had already said. Um, so just look up at the page, chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, um, just at the very bottom of um, the left-hand page. This is the first promise. God said, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. And then a follow-up promise, chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So, so far, the promises that went to Abraham, they were to make Abram a great nation, to bless him and through him to bless others, and then to give his offspring this land of Canaan. That was the promise. And now, after his error in Egypt, having got Abram back on track, 
Look now at what God says. He expands upon them and he details them for him. This is chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So you see the expanding clarity. See, what was just this land becomes all the land that you can see. And the land given simply to your offspring becomes, I will give it to you and to your offspring forever. And then the offspring too, it's not merely one descendant or even several descendants, but so many descendants that they're like the dust of the earth, too many to count. And all this is promised to a man who has already stuffed it up, who doesn't own a scrap of land, who has no children and is too old to have children. See, all this must have been such a great reassurance to him. God could well have jettisoned him from his plan after the events in Egypt. He'd be well within his rights to do so. But no, God is both gracious to him and faithful to him. He's brought Abram back And now God reaffirms and expands his promises to him. In essence, God is saying to this repentant sinner who's beginning again to live by faith, he says, I haven't rejected you. Be assured, I'm still with you. My promises are true and I will keep them. The Lord wants to make this really tangible for Abraham. He tells him to walk through the land Presumably that gives him a sense of the scale of exactly what God has given uh, to him. And that's what he does. And then finally, in the end of the chapter, in complete contrast to the end of chapter 12, our passage is closed with this wonderful scene of Abram. He's settled in the centre of God's place and he's worshipping the Lord, remaining faithful to him. He's exactly where he should be. Now, Abram's story is not over. His life from here on is not going to be perfect. There's going to be ups and downs in his walk uh, with the Lord. But this has shown us that there have been some real changes in his heart. He's living by repentance and faith. But most of all, the Lord has remained faithful to him, as he promised he would be. The Lord's still at work in him. He's still uh, growing him in repentance and faith. And actually bit of a spoiler alert, but the Lord's not done with Lot either. And we've kind of forgotten about him perhaps, but, but it's not all over for him. We're going to find out what happens to him in the next few weeks. Uh, despite his foolish choices, the Lord's not done with him. He's going to be gracious to him as well. That's really the big takeaway of this story. There's, there's lots that we could say about living by faith and not by sight. And we can learn a lot from 
The example of Abraham's trust in God, his growing faith in God. We can learn a lot from the example to avoid from Lot's foolish decisions and to walk away from God and pursue the world. But the main thing that we're to learn, the, the, the note in which this chapter leaves us on, is that God is a God of grace. He's a God of faithfulness. He's a God who brings back his people to himself when they mess up. And he's a God that keeps his promises. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we are confronted with this story, we recognise so much of ourselves in these characters. We, we recognise our lack of faith. We recognise our foolish decisions. But above all, Lord, we we recognise your tre- uh, tremendous, amazing grace to us. Thank you that even if we have messed up, uh, messed up big, that there is grace for repentance in us. Lord, we pray that perhaps there are some in the room uh, this morning who have been tempted by the world, perhaps over the summer, or have started to make their camp over in the world. We pray, Lord, that you would bring us back that in your grace you would restore us, that you would turn our hearts back to yourself. Father, above all, although we want to be people of faith, uh, we thank you that you are the faithful one, that you stick with us. Uh, We know we don't deserve it, but we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.